Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Artful Manager series. This episode is a, a reprise, a recap of what we've covered in episodes 1, 2, 3 and 4. My name is John Cross and I'm joined today by Rafael Gomez who teaches MBAs and supervises PhDs at the University of Toronto and is the Director of Industrial Relations and Human Relations. I'm also joined by Kevin Money, who's based at the Henry Business School and is also teaching MBA students and supervising PhDs and is the co-head of the Sir John Medeski Centre for Reputation Management. And thank you very much for all coming, both coming on together. It's a miracle that we've managed to make it at all with how busy we all are, but I really appreciate it and I'm sure our listeners will. So let's make a start with a recap of episode one, which was essentially, I guess, a base for all the other episodes in the series. Raphael, what resonated in your world about what we said was uh, was really the three crucial elements of every manager's real job? Yeah, well, thanks uh, thanks again, John, just to take this chance to also credit my ma- my industrial relations and human resource students that I, I, I actually teach more of than my MBA students. And actually... In this program, I think their experiences and their knowledge is probably more relevant because what we forget, right, in business schools and management schools all the time is the art of managing people, which was the impetus for our book, the little black book for managers, and then our follow-up, which was more directed towards executives. But as we titled the book, everyone is a leader at whatever level. So this stuff really resonates with me and definitely with, with the students that I teach the bulk of time with. I think the the key thing that you uh, always reminded us about was the ability for someone to do a job, uh, always always thinking about how to do it better, and in the course of doing it better, not think of the end goal immediately, because that usually sets you up for uh, putting your effort down to zero, because the end goal is very far removed. And if you put that uh, uh, objective front and center, you don't really see the point of fixing an incremental problem or a, a small detail. And yet, you know, we do these analogies all the time with our sports, our love of sports. It's actually the details that end up determining uh, who wins because at those professional levels, everyone has the talent. They've already been selected in to be the best of the best. So what determines your ability to win? It's that infinite difference, that epsilon difference that puts you over the edge and, and wins a championship versus, you know, being relegated. Uh, so the 1% that you've always emphasized is also an observation that you can't begin uh, a project or any challenge with only the end goal in mind. Of course, the end goal is important, uh, but if that's constantly your objective, you're so far removed from it, you get demotivated. And this gets back to this whole issue of understanding the human being, which fortunately a lot of business schools don't. They understand the process. They understand the engineering that they don't understand the person and the psychology that goes into those kinds of uh, objectives, if you will. So by by breaking it down into something achievable, you begin to chip away at those challenges and you become better every day. So if you become better every day, imagine what you accomplish in a month, imagine what you accomplish in a quarter, and then of course the year. <laughs> so that, that was really, for me, it always resonates. Okay. Now, on question two, we talked about setting the right example, being the model for the people 
um, who you want to behave the way that you behave and, and being ultra self-conscious about what you do with your body language, with your yeah. facial expressions. Yeah. I mean, you, you're, te- you're, you're inter- interacting with a lot of people all the time, Raphael. Yeah. Do you pick up on these, uh, these unspoken yeah. signals and do you think right. other people pick up on yours? Well, what we're seeing ourselves, of course, it's going to be a podcast. People will only hear us. But you know, here's a little trick. It turns out if if you speak, uh, people can he- hear your facial expression. And I'll, I'll do that little experiment now. So, John, I want you to understand that I'm actually really, really uh, uh, happy to be here right with you. I'm giving it away now. For those of yeah. you who can't see, I'm smiling. But yeah. without a smile, my tone changes. So people have always said, if you're on a, a sales call, if you just smile, even no matter how you feel, A, the smile will change the tone of your voice. And B, smiling is a feedback mechanism. Again, another one of these principles we've always talked about, John. Sometimes people are always prevaricating. They're not starting something. They want to get into the right headspace. They think the headspace will determine the action. Well, here's a, a trick for you. How about the action determining the headspace? So you might not be feeling great. Immediately you smile. Your smile is actually part of a feedback loop. If you were happy, you would smile, but it turns out smiling makes you happy. It's the same neurons that are involved. So when you become conscious of your ability to change tone, even if you're not being watched or seen, imagine now how much more powerful it is when you are being seen. And, you know, I was purposely, I had my arms crossed. It's comfortable, but it also, you know, we've done these training sessions where that gives off immediately a, a kind of a, a, a sense that I'm not ready to trust you. And I'm maybe not as happy as I really am feigning with my smile because my, my crossed arms and my smile are giving these sort of two different messages. It's all being picked up. Our brains have evolved for thousands and thousands of years to you know, take up these cues and be part of groups or societies. Uh, and so learning these skills and then becoming conscious of them, especially in work situations, makes such a huge difference. In question three, we talked about, well, a couple of things I'd like to get your input on. The difficulty of managing versus doing the job yourself, because normally you are better at the task that you're going to delegate to somebody else and what a challenge that is. But I'd also like your input on who steals your time, Raphael, and how do you manage them out of your day so that you have the time to spend on managing your responsibilities? Yeah, those are two great observations. And I think the operating versus managing is, is really, really crucial. And it, it, this is one where I, I step out of the psychology and go into the economics. If you remember in our in our book, I, I gave the example of trading. Why do we, why do, you know, there's a country, it's called Country X. Well, that's not the, the UK. The, the Britain was the preeminent empire in the 19th century. No one could defeat Britain on anything. They were the originators of the Industrial Revolution. They could have made everything. They didn't need to trade, but they were the f- at the forefront of trade. In fact, maybe some people said too aggressively. Uh, but the, the reason why England wanted to trade is because they knew the principle of comparative advantage, which was David Ricardo, uh, an economist born in Britain, who established that the reason why countries trade is not because one country is necessarily better or worse. It's relatively better. You could be, as a manager, better at everything your your um, team does. And by definition, you probably are because you have experience 
And the reason why you've risen and been promoted is because you did things better than others. That said, if you start doing everything, you don't gain from this ability to trade what you are relatively better at. There's got to be at least one thing, even if you're in absolute terms better at everything, everything that you are relatively better at. It would be the equivalent of these great athletes. You know, they have to choose. Uh, uh, Brady, who's this amazing quarterback, turns out he was drafted as a baseball player. He was a very, very good baseball player, but he was a great football player. He had to give his baseball career up to have an almost 20-plus year career as a quarterback. That's kind of what your mentality has to be. You can do everything really well, but concentrate on what you do best, and someone else will do the rest. Kevin, let's bring you in now. Episode two focused on managers really getting to know their teams as, well, human beings and not just work units, and then encouraging differences uh, in the makeup of their team in terms of age or gender, background, etc. What have been your management experiences at work? Yeah, no, thanks for that, John. Uh, it, you take me back to a time when I was working with UBS, the Swiss bank. And uh, I remember on, you know, we did a program for them. And, and part of the program was to bring in a senior leader who was going to tell their story. And I never forget, we had one senior leader come in and she told her story about, you know, when she first got into the bank and, you know, her recruitment practices. And she started off by saying she, you know, in her interviews, trying to get the job at UBS, she'd said that, you know, she wanted a team with everyone just like her. And as she got more senior in the bank, she realized that would be a complete disaster because, you know, we all know that, you know, if I am really good at something and if I'm really good at everything, uh, the chances are that, you know, I can do everything that you can do, but only better. So there's, there's no space for you in the team. There's no need for you in the team. And, you know, if we have weaknesses, those weaknesses are opportunities for others to, you know, make up for them their opportunities for others to have purpose there's a you know i know that you you touched on belvin but belvin has a wonderful saying which is here no one can be perfect but a team can be and it's in our imperfections that a team becomes amazing so you know it's like batman and robin or you know any good hero needs a good sidekick and sometimes the sidekick is the one that really adds the value so i think it's stop into thinking about you know us all being perfect. And I think sometimes our schooling teaches us that we have to be good at everything as opposed to be focusing on what we're really good at, and then we can be truly excellent. So the other part of your question, which I thought was really interesting, is this this notion of diversity. Um, and there's a lot of rhetoric around diversity, but the evidence on diversity is, is quite clear. And I think it's it's important to say, you know, the good and the bad things about it. I think when you have diverse teams, and by diversity, I mean, and I think the literature means the differences that we can see and the differences that we can't see. So there's diversity is about a diversity of thought. You and I, John, believe it or not, the listeners wouldn't believe, oh, you know, wouldn't know we're quite similar. We're both very good looking, but that's that's uh, way different from Rafa. No, we will we'll leave that part out. I'm sure you'll edit that out later. But the thing is, in the short term, if we have diverse teams, performance goes down. And the reason why performance goes down in the short term is that we misunderstand each other. If you can get a diverse team, which has a diversity of thought, you then, and you can stick together, you get performance going up because you bring that diversity in. So if you can use diversity as a point of connection as opposed to a point of conflict you then 
get high performance. And part of the issue that in you know the world that we're living in right now is that diversity is often used as a point of difference, as a point of conflict, but it needn't be. Uh, and I think it's often those critics of diversity will say, oh, you know, diversity is just something which is for those who say it's good. But the evidence is clear. If you get diverse teams working together over periods of times, they outperform teams that are not diverse simply because they bring those different perspectives. It's a very easy to find diversity in terms of color, in terms of age. But how would you find differences in thinking? You mentioned thinking. How, how, how difficult have you found that in building teams in your work? Well, I think, you know, if I, if I bring in, you know, the, the Belbin theory, which I, I think was way ahead of its time, it, it essentially was, is based, and you know I'm based at Henley, was based on a lot of research that was done at Henley, bringing senior leaders together in one place. And, you know, when Belbin did his original research, he found that, you know, he could get teams that were highly intelligent, highly experienced, and they weren't performing well. And part of the reason they weren't performing well is they didn't have a diversity of roles. So let me just illustrate it with two roles, and I think it's it's quite a nice example to give. So in groups, there tend to be two types of leader. One type of leader, which is a push type of leader. You need to do it this way. No, that's wrong. We're going over there. That's the way to do it, right? The tell leader. And then you've got the other leader, which is the pull leader. Would be like, oh, John, you haven't spoken for a while. Um, I'm wondering, it's, is it because you're not feeling comfortable? Uh, I know you've got something to say about this because I saw you say it before. Please, could you say it? Which is the pull type of leader. Now, there's often conflict between the pull and the push type of leader. But the evidence, again, is really strong. If you've got a group with a push and a pull type of leader, the performance goes up. And I think the beauty of the Belbin theory, or this, the, if you want to use a more modern rhetoric around diversity, is that if somebody who is a push leader knows that the team performs better when there is a pull leader as well, and the pull leader might be called, you know, in Belbin terms, you might call that a chair or a coordinator. In Belbin terms, you might call the push leader someone who's a driver or, you know, somebody who is pushing that team, almost a CEO type leader. If the CEO knows they perform better when there is the pool type leader there, they are happier. So the, the conflict between these two goes down. And that's the beauty is if you can signal to people that conflict can be good for the team, then you get better performance. And so that is where diversity comes in. Often, and I think too often, diversity is a form of conflict because it becomes personal. It becomes something between you and me. I don't like you. You don't like me. As opposed to saying, actually, you know what? This conflict is good for the team because we're both committed to the team performing well. And if we're committed to the team performing well, the conflict can lead us to a better place because we're not fighting each other. We're fighting for a better outcome. So I think that's the notion of diversity of thought, and you can do it. There are tests out there. There are psychometrics out there that identify different ways of thinking. And, you know, I would invite anyone who's listening to the podcast, go and have a look at the Balban website. It's, you know, very reasonable to go and have a Balban test done and look at how that can help you to give your team a language that can talk about the diversity that they have in a way in which it doesn't cause conflict. Well, arguably, the diversity, the differences between the three of us in terms of culture, in terms of experience, creates a learning environment that each of us can benefit from. 
Thank you, Kevin. Raphael, and we're on to episode three. And I want to talk about uh, a subject that I've heard all too frequently during our programs when I ask people to identify their weakest team member. And when they've done that in their imagination, I ask the next question, which is, why have you not replaced that person with somebody better to help you improve team performance? And their response is, John, when we're short-staffed, it's better to keep a warm body than nobody at all. Raphael, what do you think of that? Yeah, we, we have to, because if we worked in isolation, uh, then maybe you could tolerate a person who might be underperforming because there might be a, a, a seasonal aspect to it. It might be something else happening in a person's life. But when you're inside of a team and the work is jointly being produced, then the value that someone brings is not just the value, but it's what also they're detracting, what they're taking away from the other members, right? And I think that's the, I guess the cornerstone of team building is to recognize that if someone's not working out, it might be to their benefit too, to uh, to find a new place. And if you do it respectfully with the right amount of notice, if that's what you have to give, or the again, the payment in lieu of notice, we both are in jurisdictions, John, that don't just um, get rid of someone without a cause. If you don't have a cause, you have to give someone notice or pay them some severance and also try to find them the right place to go to. So if it's all done in that way, then I think you owe the team and owe, you, owe your organization um, a change. And it kind of gives back to that, what kind of team are you running? You know, it, the Ricardo Semler example that we've had from from uh, our episode three, and which was also in, in, our, in our book, it speaks to the fact that when he took over that company, it's a Brazilian industrialist, um, Semco, he, he didn't say, okay, I know everything. The reason I'm buying this is I have a plan. He said, okay, now run the show. I, I, I know this company has is, is got potential, uh, but I'm not the expert. You are the experts. Of course, this shook the whole organization. Those that needed constant direction, constant time management, felt adrift and left. Those that thrived under this kind of more entrepreneurial, autonomous uh, system stayed. And then that attracted more of those types of people. So the team that was created subsequently was stronger than the one before. But for that to happen, people have to have to leave. They have to find the right place. I'm sure those persons that wanted directions found the kind of employment that fit their personality and fit their strengths. Just picking up your point about uh, working and developing your strengths, uh, one of the things that we, one of the points we made in the book was the difference between strengths and weaknesses. I think if you, if you recall, we talked about the the dreaded annual appraisal where somebody sits down and tells you very briefly how what the things you're good at, and then spends the next quite substantial time of the discussion talking about what you're not so good at. And we are both of the agreement that people should work on their strengths. No matter how, how substantial those strengths are, they can still be improved even further. And that's what people are going to be recognized for. How does that work in the university environment that, that you're in all the time? Do you notice that? Well, I think it actually matters even more there. It's, if, you, if you think of the university as a knowledge workplace, the strengths of an individual are what you really want someone to focus on. And that's what you're hiring on. No one is a hundred percent. We said before, right? It was that idea of operating versus managing. If you start getting in and doing everyone's work, yes, again, technically you might be doing it better in absolute terms, but in relative terms, 
you're not maxing out what you're best at. And in a team, you always have people who can fill those weaknesses because it's it'll be their corresponding strengths. You do not need to be the best at everything. And if you do have a weakness, it's only when it affects your strength that you should address it. Like, you know, I, I, I prevaricate too much. I procrastinate. Well, that will not help other this uh, all everything else that you do that very well however some of that procrastination is not a bad trait it could be a strength if you have someone else who's very rash and who jumps in and starts a project before they've acquired all the knowledge you have these two kind of types of people the people who really methodical want to know everything about a problem before they solve it and those that jump right in well the two are different their strengths and weaknesses to both the key to a team is having both of those people on a team to balance each other out. Well, actions speak louder than words in most circumstances, but I remember a manager that I used to work for a few decades ago when he introduced me to a new traffic light system that it was his own, and that was red, green, amber. Red, when you're at red, you are thinking, you are planning, you were organizing. And then you, his recommendation was that you went to green as soon as you possibly could, because you could always go back to amber, stop, think. Have you made the right decision? Have you made the right moves? And then you have the opportunity, of course, to amend them, to change them so that you're on the right track. But his main message was to get started. We talk about um, person, the culture here at work. Now, how would you describe the culture of the, of the center that you manage in terms of industrial relations and human relations? That's a good question. It's always, it's had people with long tenure. That's been the history. You know, we have long tenure usually as academics, but even academics sometimes switch, find other places to work. We had a center that for many years was almost voluntarily run. You, you had an appointment elsewhere in the university, but if you were interested in studying work, you asked to come to the center and you were, you were kind of uh, partially uh, employed at the center with your main appointment somewhere else. But I often found that those people whose main appointments were in the business school or in the department of economics spent most of their time at the center. Reason being, they could do what they wanted. They had freedom. And as long as you have competent people with a lot of self-discipline, those kinds of environments are really well suited um, to, those, uh, to those personalities and to those talents. You have a place that might have less of that, then you need to be more on top of your team, more vigilant, more supervisory in your role as a manager. I don't want that. I'm glad that I didn't step into a center that had that culture. Of course, those cultures do exist. Uh, they're just not my cup of tea. <laughs> so I would say the culture we have is one that's focused on giving people autonomy, freedom. And you know, the things that really keep motivation going are autonomy, purpose, and mastery, right? If you give people autonomy and scope to do what they want to become better, they will do it. If you give them a purpose, well, what are we doing? We're trying to make the world of work better. Well, what better thing to do to wake up every day and do and put your mind to? And then finally, can I get better at something? Am I given the time to become a master in what I do or master a, a, a particular discipline? If you do those things, you're going to have success. That's great, Raphael. Thank you. Kevin, episode four was all about managers showing, well, more trust in their people and, and also getting a better balance between operating, which all managers have to do, and stepping back and thinking about the bigger picture. This question of trust, I think, is terribly important. Micromanagers demonstrate a complete lack of trust in their people, whereas better managers deliver a sense of, well, I feel trusted in their team members. Now, you've done a lot of consulting work, Kevin. 
What have you noticed about this question of trust and also the difficulty of dividing your time between operating and managing? Yeah, no, thanks, John. I, th I think your introduction was, was great because I think trust has two sides to it, a, a cognitive side and an emotional side. And I think you touched a lot on you know, this deeper feeling that we have with trust, and that is all about risk and taking risks. And I think some people find that quite difficult. But the, the irony is that without taking a risk, you never really build that emotional trust with somebody. So let me give you a little example from a while ago that, you know, I, I was working with Canon, everyone knows that the big technology giant, and, and they were going through a time of, of reorganization with their people. And there were threats of redundancies. And, you know, I was working with the part of the business, which was their service photocopier business. So they were service engineers going out to big, you know, corporate clients. And these service engineers owned the relationship with the clients. And they were feeling a lack of trust. And so their response was they were going to the clients and saying, you won't believe what Canon's doing to us. They're, you know, they won't let me help you as a client. They're tying my hands behind my back. I can't do anything for you. And, you know, when we did this research with Canon, we were trying to find out what is the core, what could overcome these service engineers almost acting like terrorists. And, and what we found was that the service engineers felt that they had never been consulted they've never been asked what the client wanted they wanted to be given the opportunity to have their hands untied and go and connect with the client and you know if you think of the, the board of canon at that time they they didn't want to let go they, they thought that they had the control of that relationship but once they let go once they let the service engineers go out to the client solve their problems the clients you know, responded positively, the service engineers responded positively. And I guess for me that the key bar of the story there is that, you know, if you if you want to build trust, you've got to give trust first. You have to take that risk first and somebody has to be the first to give. And and often the senior leaders will think that, you know, you've got to control. And that that's the second part of the question that you asked. And I think the reason that we have trust is because we can't control everything. We can't micromanage everything. And the more complex a task becomes, the more specialist a task becomes, the more senior you are as a leader, the less you are going to know about the details of the job. So the board of Canon, great guys, experts in what they do. I'm not sure any of them could fix a photocopier. On, on the site, right? Or understand the issues. So it's about letting go and understanding when to give that trust. And the second part of your question, John, was really about how you become more of a manager and less of an operator. And I think in that aspect, I think one of the key things is just to recognize that people have a different level of comfort when it comes to giving and, you know, receiving trust. And, you know, I might be somebody who naturally gives less trust than you and, and just being able to have that conversation to say you know are you somebody who needs to earn trust or can you give trust but i think as, as the leader you always need to take this first step you always need to model the behavior you want to get and i think you know the, the key thing is that in that aspect for me i think you know if i look at myself as, as somebody who's who's led a department or led part of my organization i think 
this idea that I needed to be an expert, that I needed to know everything was sometimes a barrier to me letting somebody else, you know, in. So I think that the key key thing for me there is just to say that, you know, a step towards being a true leader, I think, is just to recognize what you don't know and to recognize that, you know, human beings don't achieve really anything alone. We achieve things in partnership with others. And that's that's about giving trust. Some people might be a little bit afraid, Kevin, of showing more trust, delegating, and then mistakes being made. And you and I know the importance of mistakes in learning. And I think about James Dyson and how many variations of his new uh, vacuum cleaner he went through before he found the right one. How do you handle situations, prepare people for the confidence to make mistakes and learn from them? What's been your experience? Yeah, John, that's a huge thing, right? I've just been doing some work, um, you know, for a big, big public sector organization. And, you know, in that organization, there is a, you know, a fear sometimes of failure. And, and because of that, there's a fear to actually show that, you know, you've made a mistake. And I think, you know, there it helps to look at examples. And I know, you know, I'm a big Formula One fan and I, I know you know, the, the turnaround of Mercedes-Benz as a Formula One team happened around them shifting towards this high-performance culture which was based around sharing and learning from failure. And I, I think the key difference is, though, that, you know, learning from failure and accepting failure doesn't mean there's a lack of accountability. It means that you have to understand truly why something went wrong. And if you truly understand why something went wrong, you can make the car or the organization faster. But if, if it's about covering your back, you're never going to get there. I think if you, if you compare it then to, you know, Ferrari, who are a Formula One team who introduced this no blame culture. A lot of people are saying that the reason they weren't as successful as Mercedes is that, you know, no blame doesn't mean no accountability. And I think this notion of, of, um, putting value on the learning, right? If you, if you can, so we're, you know, if you can put value on the learning as opposed to value only on the outcome, you then start to value learning from failure. So having, including a stage, and then it's, it's back to our earlier conversation around, you know, what makes a diverse team work well, you need to have space there so you can reflect on what went well and what didn't went well, didn't go well. So I think, I think for me, the, the key thing here really is, is to focus on learning as a valued outcome. If learning is truly a valued outcome, then failure is okay. And, you know, and if learning's truly is a valued outcome, you're not going to make the same mistake twice. And so that's, that's where I would, you know, suggest it goes. Thank you, Kevin. And thank you, Raphael. Um, it's been great to have all of us together on this particular episode. And we thank you, our listeners, for, for joining us today. We urge you to revisit previous episodes to reinforce the changes that we hope you are making to become better, more effective, more successful managers. We wish you well. Thank you.